Good morning. It's great to have you here with us this morning. My name is Nathan Hinkle. I'm the campus pastor here. We have been in a series, which you just saw, called Home Improvement, and we've been talking about getting real about the health of our homes. And when we say homes, if you've been with us, you know what we're talking about. And if you haven't, let me just say, we're talking your families, all right? We're talking your future families. We're talking about your relationships. And so this applies to all of us, all right? We've been talking about getting real about the health of those things, all right? And what we've said, we've said in week one, and this is not something that will surprise you, you will readily agree with this, there are no perfect families, all right? Can I get an amen on that? Amen. There are no perfect families. Now, what's also possibly troubling for us is that there are, we've also said there are no perfect families that we read about in the Bible and God's word. There is no family in the Bible that where, that you could, you could emulate their faith, all right? There's no one for you and I to look at and say, man, that's how you do marriage. Man, that is how you do parenting. That's how you build a home. This is how you relate with the people in your family. It's not there. So we have no people of faith to emulate. So what do we do with that? Do we give up and say, well, it's been a good run um, or let's just make up our own stuff? No, we don't give up because, because what we've said is that you and I are in a battle. We're in a battle to fight for our families. If you're a young adult, if you're a teenager, all right, for your family now and for your future family, we're in a battle to fight for what God says is best and true for our homes, all right? Now, the truth is, you and I are who we are today because of the people in your family who came before you, right? Now, you can like that or you can not like that. It can mean it's good. It can mean it's not so good. But in part, you and I who are who we are today because of the people who came in our family before us, all right? You are what you are. You are, you do what you do. You say what you say in part because of your parents, And guess what? Your parents did what they did. They are who they are. They say what they say in part because of your grandparents and on and on it goes behind you. All right. But it doesn't stop there. All right. We, the people in this room, again, I don't care how old you are or what season of life you find yourself in. You might be middle school, high school, young adult, married, single, grandparents, something else, all right? But, but we are, as we speak this morning, shaping the generation that will come behind us. All right? So wherever you are right now, because of who you are, because how, because of how you speak, because of what you do, there are people that will be coming behind you that will be shaped because of your life. Now that's a crazy, sobering, frightening, right? Thought. You will be a snapshot someday in someone else's story. Someday your picture will be hanging on the wall in the hallway in someone's home and someone's going to be pointing at you in that photo and they're going to be saying, oh, that's, that's grandpa so-and-so or, oh, that's your uncle or, oh, that's your grandmother or, oh, that's your mom's sister. You're just going to be a picture in a frame. You're going to be a name. You're going to be a life further up on someone's family tree. All right, my great-grandfather, 
was a preacher. Not a lot of people know that. In fact, I didn't even really put it together for a, and really just into several years ago. All right, because God called me into ministry as a vocation, um, you know, pretty late in, in my, you know, right the summer after my high school graduation, and it was a really short window of time. I just kind of jumped right into to college to, to study to be a pastor. So I didn't really ever put together that my great grandfather had been a pastor. All right, there's a picture of them. It, it's actually a copy of a newspaper article from the early 90s. So that's my great grandpa Earl Hinkle. All right. And uh, Vivian, my great-grandmother, these are my dad's grandparents, all right? And my great-grandfather, Earl, was a World War I artillery specialist, and he came back from Europe and um, settled in the West Virginia, um, southeastern Ohio area. And when he was 40 years old, he became a pastor, so kind of later in life, all right, he became a pastor at 40 years old. I'm 40 now, and so that really is kind of just an odd thought. And, and when he turned 90, um, this, uh, this newspaper um, in the, in, just outside of Ironton, Ohio, did an article on my grandfather because he was still preaching at 90 years old. He would say, my dad would tell stories about um, my grandpa um, or my great-grandfather all the time, you know, just like these little sayings that he would say, you know, these little things that, that he would do. And one of them, and, and I'm sure my great-grandfather did not um, come up with this quote, but he says this because my dad repeats it all the time. He says, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into a barn makes you a hog, all right? That's what he'd say, all right? So um, you can use that, by the way. That's free for you today. Um, so write that down. That's going to be the most memorable thing you're going to need to know, all right? But he would say things like that. In fact, when they, when they did this article, they quoted him saying, I don't intend to quit preaching until I have to. In fact, my dad tells me that just a few weeks um, before he died at 92, my grandpa was up on a Sunday morning preaching at a little Methodist church in southeastern Ohio. Here's the point. You have a future family, and you are currently in process now, each and every one of us, on leaving our mark on that future. So here's our big idea for today. It's printed on the front of your program. It's very, very simple. Leave a legacy. Leave a legacy. I'm going to spend the bulk of our morning today to share a story with you. In fact, that's really all we're going to do is I'm going to tell you a story and the story is of an imperfect family that we find in the Bible. In fact, it's a great example. There's this man that we read about in Genesis, and his name is Abraham. And Abraham has a couple of sons. One, of it, one son is Isaac. Here's the family tree. Isaac is going to have two, two sons that we'll speak of today. All right, And Isaac's going to have two sons named Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob will have 12 sons, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. Now, Jacob and Esau, you see our family tree back here? All right, we got it up. Okay, Jacob and Esau are going to be twin brothers, all right? They're twins, but Esau is born first. And so what that means in this culture is that Esau, as the oldest of the twins, gets the largest portion of his father's inheritance. He has the birthright to all of his father's wealth and to title as patriarch and leader of the family when his father dies, all right? Well, Jacob is going to have 12 sons, and one son is going to be born from his favorite wife, and that son's name is Joseph. Now, 
When, Jacob, when I say Jacob had a favorite wife, please listen. <laughs> this is already going to be bad for this family. If you find yourself in a position to have a favorite wife, all right, you've got some screwed up family issues going on, okay? God can work with that. He'll deal with that. He'll bring you out of it. But, all right, but we've already seen this, this matrix set up of some messed up stuff in this home. Joseph's going to be born from Jacob's favorite wife. And Joseph's going to grow up as his father's favorites. Now, every... we have any parents in the room? Any, anybody? Okay. Every parent has... If you've got more than one child, you're going to have those kids arguing over who is their parent's favorite, right? All right? And parents always laugh it off because, no, I love you all the same, which is pretty much a lie, all right? But it's okay. It's, a, it's, it's okay. You can lie to your kids. They, they don't care. All right? I'm kidding. Don't do that. All right? But, all right. but, but so-and-so is mom and dad's favorite. And all of you right now are like, you're pointing to which, who, is, who it is, and you're writing down names. Okay? And it's fine. Listen, listen. The Bible actually tells us, we don't even have to guess how Jacob felt about his 12 sons. Genesis 37.3 says this, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. All right? There it is. There's no, nobody even had to guess. He was his father's favorite. Right? And he, with that came a little bit of arrogance, okay? A little bit of confidence that Joseph had growing up. His brothers hated him, all right? Because he was his father's favorite. Now, one day, um, one day Jacob is going to call his, his favorite son Joseph and he says, listen, I have sent your brothers out into the fields to work and to herd, but I have a feeling they're up to no good, all right? I want you to go and I want you to spy on them and tell me what they're doing. So like any favorite son, he's like, you got it, dad. He's going to go spy and snitch on his brothers. So he does. He's going, he goes off in the fields and his brothers are out there. I don't know what they're doing. They're drinking, they're partying, they're not working. And, and they see him coming from a long distance off. So his brothers had devised a plan. Here comes dad's favorite, that little jerk, that self-righteous, you know, and they're just like, like, I know, let's kill him. Now, you probably have some sibling, rival, sibling rivalry issues in your family, maybe at times. These guys, your, your kids are angels compared to what these guys do, all right? I know how to solve the problem. Let's kill him and we'll throw his body in the well, okay? And then the other brothers, like, you know, some of them come to their senses. No, we really can't kill him. That feels too harsh. Let's just beat him up and we'll sell him into slavery. And they all can agree that's an appropriate response. So they do. All right? They beat him up. They sell him into a traveling caravan of slave traders. They sell him. They go home and tell their father that he was torn apart by wild animals. So Joseph ends up arriving in Egypt. He's sold into slavery. He arrives in Egypt. He is sold to an Egyptian officer whose name is Potiphar. So now the favorite son of a wealthy family is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and is now a slave in the house of an Egyptian official. And look what Genesis tells us about where Joseph finds himself in this predicament. It's in Genesis 39, verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he has succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Now, when I tell you or when someone tells you or you read in God's word that God is with you, what do you expect that to look like? Rarely, if I told you, man, God is with you, rarely you would expect that to be, okay, the evidence of such is that I was betrayed by the people I trusted most, I was kicked out of my home, sold into slavery, and now I'm a slave. God's with you. That's not how that feels. 
In fact, what you see in Joseph's life over and again is he has this this tendency to always lean into faith, to always lean into God and trust him, even when it looks like God has abandoned him. Well, we're told that because of Joseph and who he was, he rises in ranks in Potiphar's house and he becomes the head servant. He becomes the servant that oversees all the other servants. And it's at that time that Potiphar's wife, she's a cougar, all right? She sees this strapping young Hebrew lad in the house and she notices, man, he looks pretty good. And so she works on seducing Joseph to sleep with her. And she approaches him several times to sleep with her. And finally... He says in his response to, to Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, is he says, verse 9, he says, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. There he goes again, staying close to God. But listen to what happens next. Potiphar's wife is so humiliated and angry of his constant refusal for advances that she screams out and tells everybody in the house that Joseph attempted to rape her, which lands Joseph in the dungeon. Now, God is with you. Listen in verse 31, what it says. Or verse 21, sorry. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Let me just tell you this. If you ever find yourself in a position to be the prison warden's favorite, you've taken a wrong turn somewhere in life, okay? Um, He was his dad's favorite. And then he was a slave, and now he's in the dungeon, but yet we're told that God is still with him. He spends years in prison, all right? I mean, he's at the bottom of the barrel. Well, eventually, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, throws his cupbearer into prison. We don't know why, but his cupbearer is the dude that, that holds the goblet of wine and serves the king his food, and he tastes it before he gives it to the king to make sure it's not poisoned, right? Well, somehow the cupbearer has ticked off Pharaoh. He's thrown him in prison, and Joseph meets the king's cupbearer. And the cupbearer has this dream when he's in prison. And Joseph says, you know what? I have this knack, this skill that God has given me to interpret dreams. We've seen Joseph do this before. In fact, um, he was his dad's favorite, do you remember? When Joseph was a kid, he would go up to his brothers and say, hey, hey guys, I had a dream. Now, if you're trying to get in on the good side of your brothers, this is not what you do. He says, I had a dream that one day all of you will be bowing down to me. Isn't that wild? Isn't that crazy? It didn't work on like endearing his brothers towards him, by the way, obviously. All right. So, he, so Joseph has, tells this cupbearer, I can tell you what your dream means. It means three days from now, Pharaoh is going to restore you back into his service. Sure enough, three days later, Pharaoh calls for his cupbearer to be restored back into service. And Joseph says before he leaves, he's like, listen, 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 listen. If you could just do one thing for me, please tell someone that I'm here. I've been stuck in this dungeon for years. Tell someone that I'm suffering here so that maybe someone can help me. And the cupbearer says, man, man, I mean, of course, I've got your back. And the cupbearer goes and he's restored. Where he soundly forgets about Joseph. So there it is, his father's former favorite, a brother, betrayed, sold into slavery, a servant, and now a prisoner to rot in the dungeon. 
Well, some time has passed. In fact, two years passes. And one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh's calling all of his officials from all over the empire into his throne room to interpret this troubling dream for him. And Pharaoh's just languishing. He's like, I just can't figure out this dream. No one can tell me. So his cupbearer is standing by the throne holding the wine, and he's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> Your majesty, it so happens. Do you remember? No, never, never mind. I know a guy. <laughs> I, I know a guy who can tell you what your dream means. So the guards go and they grab Joseph out of prison. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. Is this the end? Is this where he gets executed? Is his life over? They cut his hair. They shave. They put some clothes on him, right? And they send him in the throne room of the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. He doesn't know what's going on. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, I've had a dream and I need you to tell me what it means. And look at, look at Joseph's response. Genesis 41, 16. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Left in the dungeon to rot, Joseph has the audacity to look at this man who, by the way, everyone in Egypt consider Pharaoh to be a god and a pantheon of other Egyptian gods Joseph has the gall to look at him and say, I know the one true God who can tell you what your dream means. I mean, at that moment, you can picture Pharaoh's bodyguards reaching for their swords to cut him down as soon as he dared his blasphemy. But they don't, because Joseph goes on to tell Pharaoh what his dream meant. Joseph said, let me tell you what this means. In the next seven years, Egypt is going to have seven years of prosperity. I mean, we're going to grow all kinds of crops. Food is going to be plentiful. I mean, it's just going to be overflowing. But seven years after that, and for seven years, there's going to be a famine in Egypt. Everything that the ground produces will die, and our people will starve. But, oh, great Pharaoh. And then Joseph steps into the favorite son category again, because he never really leaves you, all right? A little bit of arrogance, a little bit of audacity. Joseph then has the audacity to tell the God king and gives him some advice. Says, Pharaoh, here's what I think you should do. I think you should build silos, grain silos, all over Egypt. And I think you should tax your people a certain portion of all of their harvest. And you store all of this food and all of this grain and silos all over the country. And then Pharaoh, do that for seven years. Because when the famine strikes, Egypt will be rich with food. And Pharaoh, you will own all of the grain in the entire region. I know you're wealthy now, man, but you're going to be so rich then. People will come from all over the countryside to buy grain from Egypt and from you, O oh great Pharaoh. And then he says, I think you should appoint an administrator over all of that to do that. And then he's done. Pharaoh stands up. And he holds his scepter out and points at Joseph. Now, is he going to take him to behead him? Is he going to throw him back in the dungeon? No, this is what Pharaoh says. You're my man. It's you. And from that day on, Joseph has full administrative rights over all of Egypt. And he has second in command only to the king himself. Well, sure enough, the famine happens. 
and, and, and Egypt's ready. They have stored and Joseph has administrated this entire thing and they're stored and they're ready to go. And people from all over Egypt, in fact, from outside of Egypt, must come to Egypt to buy their food. Now, let's go back into another place. Do you remember Jacob, Joseph's father? He's going to gather 10 of his sons together. The same sons who, by the way, devised to murder their younger brother, but instead were gracious and sold him into slavery. Jacob invites them in and he says, listen, guys, boys, I need you to travel to Egypt. I've heard they've got lots of food there. I need you to go to Egypt and buy grain for us. And so they go. And they go to Egypt and, and, and they walk into the, the, this royal palace and they're said, you need to go talk to the administrator if you want to buy grain. And so they walk into the room and they bow, ten, 10 of these brothers bow down before the administrator. Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. But they don't, they don't readily recognize him. In that moment, 22 years after they had beaten him and sold him into slavery, like a tsunami of emotion, because time does not often lend its kindness when it comes to forgetting those who have hurt you and betrayed you. You remember. You remember a face. And so all of that betrayal and all of that anger of the times that he was a slave and all of those years he languished in prison, all of that contempt that Joseph felt for his brothers is like coming on a wave on him. He remembers, but get this, that is not the only thing from his past he remembers. Let's rewind a little bit. Do you remember Esau and Jacob, the twin boys? Joseph's father is Jacob. Now, one day, we're going to start rewinding a little bit, when Esau and Jacob were still teenage boys themselves. One day, Esau goes, goes out to hunt. And unlike if you're a sportsman now and you enjoy hunting, unlike in today's culture, if you didn't catch anything, you starved that day, okay? And Esau comes back home. He had been hunting all day. He hadn't caught anything. And there's his twin brother in the kitchen just stirring a pot of stew, Esau comes in and he's like, little brother, listen to me. I'm starving. I need you to give me a bowl of stew. Now, Jacob, and this is often younger brother's gift, all right? Jacob sees an opportunity. He's like, what can I get from this, all right? You're hungry. I've got food. You need my food. I know. I'll give you a bowl of soup if you agree to trade me your birthright. All of our father's inheritance all that is coming to you when our father dies, the leadership in the family, I'll trade you that for a bowl of stew. Now, if you're a teenage boy in the room, I know you aren't like this, but oftentimes other teenage guys are. They don't necessarily make the best decisions about future consequences when it comes to what they want immediately, all right? And Esau says, okay, for a bowl of soup, he trades his birthright. So Jacob says, you're on. Now, some time passes, and Isaac, their father, is failing in health. He's dying, and he's losing his eyesight. 
it's time to call his oldest son into the tent where Isaac will lay his hand and bestow the blessing of the birthright on his oldest son. But Jacob sneaks in first. Jacob walked in, his father, he's disguised himself at Esau, his father's half blind, Esau, he, his father's ha- half blind, and Jacob kneels down before his father and he says, Father, it's, it's, it's I, Esau, your eldest, I am here to get my blessing. So Isaac lays his hands on Jacob, thinking it's Esau, and bestows the family blessing on him. And Jacob just like sprints out of the tent, <laughs> all right? A few minutes later, Esau comes in the tent. He comes in and he says, Isaac, father, I am here, your eldest, to receive your blessing. And Isaac says, oh no. Someone just came in here and pretended to be you. And I've already given your blessing to him. And it was a legally binding agreement that could not be reserved. Isaac says, your brother has stolen your birthright. Jacob runs and Esau says, I'm going to kill him. Well, Jacob flees. He packs whatever he can carry, and he runs off to a foreign country. Now, Jacob's going to do very well for himself. He's going to find his way into a wealthy family. He's going to marry Leah, and then his, her, sister, her sister Rachel. Then he'll have children with them. Also, they're two female servants. Okay, so again, there's no good family to emulate in the Bible, all right? So he's going to have four wives, several children with them. In fact, he will have 12 sons, the youngest of which he will have from his favorite wife, and that boy's name will be Joseph. Well, one day, uh, as he's amassed all of his wealth, Jacob decides it's time to pack up all of his wives, all right, all of his sons, all of his herds, all of his wealth, all of the servants, and he's, he packed them all in this caravan to march across the desert to head home. But guess who heard that little brother's coming back to town? Esau. And as Jacob comes across the plain with this caravan of wealth and people, he sees in the distance his brother Esau waiting for him. We're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 33, starting with verse 1. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. Man, can I tell you what? Esau's had a few years to plan the retribution. He's got 400 friends. He's got a small army waiting for his brother to come home. So so Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. Again, if you find yourself with two servant wives, you've taken the wrong path somewhere, okay? He put the servant wives and their children at the front. This is a real man here, okay? Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and Joseph last. Now, you talk about playing favorites. He has 12 sons at this time, but Joseph is the only one mentioned by name. Verse 3, then Jacob went on ahead of them, and as he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. He's coming up to Esau, and he's ready, either, either he's going to be executed right there in front of him, or, or he's, um, he, he's hoping to bribe him with gifts, all right, and buy his way out of this. He doesn't know what, or, or he's going to be ready for a fight. In a few hundred yards back behind them, 
sitting on a wagon with his mother, is a little boy named Joseph. And he's watching from across this plain. And he sees very clearly what happens next. And what happens next? The story is going to be told in his family for years to come. And Joseph will remember what he saw well into his adult years. Jacob is bowing at the feet of his brother who he had betrayed. Genesis 33, 4. Then Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, Who are these people with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children. They bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children. They bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. Uncle Esau. Joseph will remember the day in vivid detail that his uncle forgave his father. And there, all of those years later, sitting in Egypt, there is Joseph with his 10 brothers bowed before him. And they don't know it's him. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> he's, got, he's got the makeup on. He's got his hair cut in the style of Egyptian royalty. And he reveals himself to his brothers. Look at chapter 45, verse 3. He says, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. And then later in verse 15, then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. Joseph did for his brothers what he had heard and saw in his family's past. About 4,000 years later, Jesus is going to be born from this family tree. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus' father is going to instill in him a legacy of forgiveness. From a line of imperfect men and women who dared to put their trust in God, Jesus will be born perfect. From a legacy, you and I. See, what the cross tells us when Jesus went there is that you and I come from a long line of grace. It goes back into our family history for generations. What your family sees you do today, they will remember 
when life throws hard things at them. What your family sees in you today as a teenager, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a grandparent, as a, as a single person, as a man, as a woman, what your family sees you do today, they will remember. When life gets hard, when trials come and the difficulties well up, when life just happens, they will remember who we are and what we did. So we're going to go into our time to reflect on this. And as you reflect on this, let me, let me remind you, you and I are role models today for the people who are coming after us. We are role models for what, what, what a godly marriage looks like. We are role models for what, what parenting and relationships look like. We are role models for when our young men are looking to how to treat a young woman, that's on us. And when our young ladies are looking at what they should expect from young men, that's on you and me. Right now, in this moment, we are leaving a legacy of what it looks like to be generous and what faith looks like. And if that's true, what should we do differently? If that's true, and if it is, it's true for every person in this room, what should we do differently? What would need to change? And why wouldn't we change it as soon as possible? There's a blank copy of a coat of arms in your program. And the coat of arms kind of goes back to medieval days when knights would go into battle with this uh, tunic that they would wear over their armor and would have family crests on it, symbols or words that symbolize the values and the heritage of that family. So here's what I want you to do is I want you to pray over that piece of paper. And I don't want you to fill in words into that piece of paper now, but I want you to consider. I want you to take it home. And I want you to sit down. And I want you to prayerfully consider. You sit down with your spouse if you're married or if you have kids, involve them. What is it that your family wants to be known for? What values, what things of faith do you want for generations to come? to be etched into the mind of those who come after you? What are you about? Consider that. Because decisions will be made by others with the imprint of your life in mind. And that is heavy. And it should be. Pray with me. Father God, God, you've called us to do the impossible. Father, and that is to, to leave a legacy of faithfulness for those bef before us or those to come after us would follow it, God, but we'll mess it up. We need your grace. We need to remember that we come from a Savior who has forgiven and set us free. 
and that he has promised those of us who put our faith in him, your Holy Spirit, who empowers us and gives us everything we need, Father, to leave a legacy for those who are coming after us. God, give us wisdom. God, give us strength to pour into and out of our lives today the values that will lead those who come after us towards what you say is the best and true. God, we need you. We thank you for the legacy of grace and forgiveness you've offered us. May we pass it on, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.